This week, William and I sat down with Andy Adams to compare notes. Andy is the founder of Flack Photo, an international community of photographers that operates in a parallel path to the one William and I come from, the New York-based studio and museum world. Our paths share many common roots, particularly in the early days of blogging, but are also marked by some pretty profound differences. While the museum world has been busy debating the postponed Gustin show at the Tate, photographers are reckoning with the ethics of documentary photography, a debate that's happening in a politically charged environment. Andy, William and I began working online around the same time, 2003 to 2005. So we start our conversation there. We track through the exuberance and possibility that we saw online in the early aughts, the economic collapse of the late aughts, and the fraught political environment we're now navigating. Hello and welcome to Explain Me. My name is Patty Johnson. And I'm William Pauheida. Today we're here with a very exciting guest, Andy Adams. He uh, is the founder of Flack Photo, which has an array of um, social media platforms. And he is always talking about photography um, and is uh, probably the biggest photo expert slash nerd that I know of. Um, Andy, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, so we, Andy, you and I have um, known each other for, I don't know, like, uh like it's 15 years maybe like maybe in advance in advance of our call I, I i googled i checked you out in my gmail and uh you and i started to email in august of 2008 so it's been 12 years 12 years so quite quite a long time um yeah. and i think like one of our sort of interests in having you here was that all of us have been like you know, interneting for a very long time. And I thought it would be really fun to have somebody who, you know, I just, we only connected IRL for like the first time in 2015. Right. Um, and like since that. Mini, yeah, I'm in Minneapolis, right? Up in the city. Yes, for the Superscript uh, conference, which was at the Walker Museum, which was for, um, you know, a, it was a conference on criticism. So it's really nice to be able to do that. Um, but we have like each of us kind of a long trajectory of, of what the, um, our internet presence uh, has looked like. Now, as per usual, when we, uh, do this show um, since the pandemic has uh, started, we've been doing a check-in with our guests and just seeing how they're doing, how they're managing um, their lives. We are, as we record this, like um, three days out from the election. So before we even started, all of us were talking about how brutally hard it is to um, concentrate on anything. Um, how are you doing, Andy? I would say on the whole, I'm, I'm doing okay. I mean, ups and downs. I think, you know, we follow each other on Twitter. So you, uh, you can sort of get a sense from where my, uh, <laughs> where my lows are, depending on where my, what my retweets it might be. Um, <laughs> right. you know, cer certainly the last two years, uh, it, something kind of switched inside of me where I just started to, uh, realize that, uh, social media was a, a way of 
cathartically expressing myself. But I mean, on the whole, I guess I'm okay. You know, the big the big development for me here lately is something that I I realized about a month ago, independent of the election. Uh, I live in Wisconsin, and um, and just really starting to realize because uh, you know the leaves are falling out here that we're going to be experiencing a winter in quarantine and what's that even going to mean and so you know that's starting to weigh on me a little bit because that's kind of unprecedented you know but i mean on the whole it's ups and downs i'm hanging in there um william how are you doing uh you know i'm having some good days and some bad days uh but yeah i think as we were talking about uh, before we got going with the podcast um it just feels like time is doing some really strange things right now, you know, like with the early voting, uh, you know, it seems like the election is just stretched out, you know, it sort of doesn't have a fixed point and there's no end point necessarily in sight. You know, I'm not sure that we're going to get a, a winner, you know, announced, uh, or yeah, I don't think we're going to be, we're going to know who won the election on Tuesday night, you know, before we go to bed. And right. so I don't know how long that's going to stretch out. And it just, you know, echoes the kind of general anxiety and uncertainty I've been feeling, you know, in the studio. And yeah, so it, it's been it's been tough. You know, I think, um, you know, it's been a couple of months since we did our last podcast, Patty, you know, and yeah. it just feels like a lot of the kind of early connectivity that, you know, um, I was having with people in the sort of early months of the quarantine and the pandemic has sort of gone away. It's even a little bit more isolating, even though things have kind of partially reopened. I don't know. It's just been a really strange couple of uh, months. Yeah, I would say that that's true for me. Um, I think I, you know, I certainly have ups and downs. Like I feel like I'm having these like huge mood swings that are, you know, indicative. Uh, you know. I feel like my mood is about as unstable as the country is right now, um, <laughs> which is potentially a problem for anybody I live with. Um, apologies. <laughs> um, but like, you know, I, before we got on, I just, I said to both of you that I needed to, to just warn um, everyone that I've been feeling a little bit teary today. Um, mm. And I think partially that's because I spent some early morning hours on Twitter and, you know, got scared. Um, and <laughs> um, so here I am. Um, and in fact, there was somebody else uh, that I follow, um, Fred Benison, who has this like screenshot um, of a Google search that just says medically induced coma until election. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's that's always the trade-off, right? I mean, is you feel this is my own view, anyways. Like Twitter has become kind of this essential part of my media diet, and I feel this extreme need to know what's happening. And yet, at the same time, if I take a few steps away, I think, you know, I could just prevent myself a lot of anxiety if I were just to not do this <laughs> if I were just to, to look at something else. So it's a real kind of catch 22, I think, because I feel like I want to be informed. I want to know what's happening. I want to be, I want to, I want to listen to the right people for the right information. And yes. yet, you know, the more, the more, it's kind of a, the more you do that, the more kind of heightened your, your anxiety can get depending on the day. I mean, it is like every other day, some crazy situation is sort of, you know, making your heart race. Yeah. It really seems like there's a tension between wanting to stay informed as if that's going to give us some sense of control 
over an outcome where, you know, I mean, I, I voted early, so that responsibility is done. And oh, now I just deal. have to wait, you know, and, and see uh, what kind of country we actually live in, you know. Um, and, you know, I think that that urge to really look at the media constantly um, isn't a substitute for, you know, like actually having agency, you know, it's like, yeah. And and just consuming more of it can, um, you know, become unhealthy, I think. I agree. I mean, that I, doesn't, st- doesn't stop me, however. <laughs> I know. Very addictive, right? You know? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I honestly think we do know what kind of country we live in. We live, like, you know, Biden is ahead. The, the swing, swing states are sort of, a, a you know, a question, but he is ahead a in them. And in ways that are significantly different from 2012. Um, but, um, you know, I was sort of struck, like I was looking at, um, God, what's that guy's name? Pascal. I can't remember his first name that, um, Trump's former campaign manager. Brad Pascal. Oh, Brad Pascal. Yeah. Okay. Pascal. Yeah. So I was looking at something related to what he, uh, some, uh, I can't remember the article, but I read an article about him and like what he was doing and and the response to it but they had when they built out the trump campaign they referred to their social media um sort of build out as the death star and i was Hmm. just like these guys know they're the bad guys like there's no nobody is hiding that they're bad like that's like they they happily take on that mantle and then of course the biden campaign um, in response, started calling themselves like the rebel forces or the rebel alliance or whatever. Like, just like we're. <laughs> it makes me so angry because that idea that this is all just a kind of uh, sick form of entertainment, you know, is not. Yeah. yeah. Me, that, you know, we're on social media constantly and, you know, making Twitter a great deal of money. And, you know, it's mm. like Andy, as you mentioned, it's hard to resist the kind of trap of it. And in part yeah. because there is so much kind of sick entertainment involved in it, like watching a, a train wreck unfolding, you know. Um, and, you know, I think, I, I know we know these, the Republicans and Trump's party are the bad guys, but I guess I'm still waiting to, when I, when I say I'm waiting to see what kind of country we live in, it's like, now we've had four years of Trump. You know, we've seen what they've done. And if people still oh, yeah. want to vote for him, there's no, you know, like, who is, is, is it just a, a, a persona or a performance? Not at all. You know, he's a monster. And that is frightening that it's even a, a, a close race, you know. Is it close, though? I mean, you know, actually, to your point about what country, what kind of a country we live in, my first thought was, uh, like Patty just said, I think we know. And then uh, just now, though, what I actually realize I'm, I'm more concerned about is um, not whether or not the the electorate decides if they want to, you know, the Biden candidate versus the Trump candidate, but whether or not um, justice can prevail, like whether or not the system actually will work, you know? I mean, I live in Wisconsin, this like really, really high profile battleground state. And, you know, that brings with it whole other levels of anxiety um, just on account of the fact that it's in our local face all the time. I mean, my wife and I go for these drives out into the country and you get 40 miles out of town and there's just Trump signs everywhere. It sort of makes you feel like you're surrounded by this, by this worldview. And then, but then you read these numbers, you read these polls 
and you sort of think to yourself, okay, well, it actually feels like just, you know, like, like, like this, the system's going to work. But then increasingly you wonder with these Supreme court justice, uh, appointments or all these other court appointments, like will the popular vote actually work? I mean, is, will the system hold is, is my big anxiety, especially to your point, William, about whether or not things are going to, we're not going to have an answer on November 4th. It's going to be a weeks long thing and it's going to be very litigated, I would assume. So that's a whole other level, right? Yeah, I completely agree with you that, you know, will this, will the system, you know, be able to withstand, you know, what they're trying to get rid of a hundred thousand, uh, curbside votes in Texas, you know, um, you know, all the decisions in Pennsylvania about whether or not, you know, if there's any, uh, anything happens with the kind of mail-in voting, you know, Trump just wants to kind of get rid of all of the mail-in votes because they're skewing so democratic um, in terms of early voting results. But I think, you know, one thing that I've just been thinking about around Trump is the fact that the, our presidency can accommodate somebody like him. Like, I feel like, uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's crazy to think that he could stay in office, be impeached, but not convicted. And, and our presidency and our government is set up to allow him to kind of like function in that. It just really, uh, you know, it does cast doubt on <laughs> how, how strong and effective our systems are for oversight, you know, and accountability. Um, it's, it's just frightening. You know, he's been in office for four years and normalized behaviors and actions that would have sunk other administrations, I think, you know, but. Right. And right. I, think, I think also it does sort of jam a, a wrench into our, our idea of like who we are. Like, I think that, um, you know, four years ago, we would have still identified as um, a nation that, um, you know, holds compassion as a value. Mm-hmm. And, I, and not that that, um, is necessarily gone from the electorate, but you see a lot more like a lack of compassion as being um, something that is a sign of strength, right? If the, if the goal is to just brutally beat the opposition, then a lack of compassion is seen as a strength. So on that one side, what we're seeing is like, is a shift in the country's values and you know, you think like people are these kind of like stable personalities that essentially, you know, I think that like documentary seven shows traces like seven people and they're like basically the same throughout the course of their lives. But here we see how um, external forces can really um, shape the way that people view things and how they act. And yeah. that's, I think that's, scary because you you want to believe that there is something at your core that really kind of um defines you and if there's one thing that i think um social media uh does teach us it's that a lot of these things are constructed and and quite mutable for sure and actually i mean this is a good (laughs) this is an interesting topic for for me this like marriage of of social media and digital communication and politics, because it's, I didn't start there with an interest in that, but just as someone that follows how media operates and, you know, every one of my photography projects has been as much about how the web works and how people engage with the internet as it has been about pictures, you know, the sort of this like 
corollary is sort of following how the rise of social media and and actually like you know visual meme political ideology circulates on social and just watching even members of my extended family do this on Facebook it's you know it, it all lends itself to a super shallow reading and it's alarming right I mean how it most of it is not really complex and most of it is really sort of visceral and emotional and I think that's a another part of what complicates the notion of what makes like leads us to understand where our, our values as a nation are or or what are you know what we actually want to emulate out of our politicians because the the kinds of content we're even engaging with in large part isn't very deep right it's it's pretty surface and it's pretty visceral and um you know you don't get a lot of nuance on on a on a meme that you maybe pay half attention to before you retweet it and you know that's been talked about already at length, but that you know th that has been as someone for me as someone that sort of started with, with from this point of seeing all this creative potential on the internet and like really being an evangelist for embracing social media. It's been pretty disillusioning, frankly, to see how it has shaped <laughs> yeah. up. You know, well, Patty, honestly, over the you know we we started that email, Patty, in two thousand eight. That was probably around the time that I, I started to really understand how to use Facebook and, and started to fold Facebook into my photography work. And I'm, I'd imagine for, for all of us, that kind of was around that time. I mean, in 12 short years, our whole, whole understanding of our relationship to social media has changed pretty dramatically, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And Andy, um, I am not as familiar with your practice. You know, um, Patty's, you know, introduced me to you and your work but I'd be really curious to hear what was it like back in 2008 for you, you know, and how were you using emerging social media platforms versus traditional websites, you know? I mean, I was still tinkering with like a WordPress site, you know, back in 2008 or starting a, a I was probably yeah. using like Google Blogger, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. Um, but that would be great to kind of hear about that because, you know, we can kind of travel back in time a little bit for our listeners and maybe Patty, you could <laughs> talk a little bit about the early days of Art F City or when it was fully Art Bag City as well. You know? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, Patty, when did, you, when, did, when, did, when, did, when did you, I'm just curious, when did you start writing your blog? When did you start publishing? 2005. So uh, in 2005, I started um, as, as William did actually on a blogger platform Um and I think things were quite different than I, I had sort of imagined that I would be like, um, there was somebody at the time, I think it was Wonkat. So she was mm -hmm. like, uh, mm -hmm. you know, an anonymous political blogger who would like break all these stories. And I thought, oh, I'll be like the Wonkat of the art world. So I started anonymously and that lasted like two or three months, like very little not very long at all because I found that I wanted to have um, like I, I wanted to be able to interview people. And if I was like not telling them my name, mm -hmm. <laughs> it was not going to work out that well. So, um, so that's when I started. Oh, five. I started. So like the beginnings, the beginnings of the flag photo project for me go back to about 2003, four, which is like, you know, dog years in internet history, yeah, right? It's kind yeah. of ancient history when you think about it. That's kind of nuts, 17 years. And um, it started as this like little sort of side project spinoff photo blog from a, an online magazine that I was um, 
editing film reviews for and doing photo editing for called Flack Magazine, which was based here, a, a group that came out of the University of Wisconsin at Madison, where I live and went to school. And, um, you know, it's interesting, like in the history of like the online photography scene, there has been always sort of a distinction between photography blogs and photo blogs. And photography blogs were blogs with primarily writing about photography. But there was this movement that I really, that this was the side door that I came in on called the photo blog uh, movement. And this was this sort of moment in the early 2000s when you had a confluence of, you know, uh, prosumer DSLR cameras becoming popular and accessible and affordable, um, which meant more amateur people making pictures. You had the rise of these like self-publishing platforms like Blogger, or I was using TypePad in the beginning, um, you know, or there were, I, I can't even think that movable type was a bit more complicated back then. So you um, were kind of techie then. Yeah, well, it, kind of. Yeah, I mean, I, I have, I, I actually didn't study photography or art formally. I, I came up from a film program and a broadcasting program and media studies and communication arts, and so, sort of, always came from this background of thinking about screen first and and a little bit of a little bit of tech and a little bit of production as well as, I guess, art like literary theory or reading films as though they were literature, that kind of thing, and. Um, but it, but it, what happened in this photo blog scene in the early days, it, it was sort of proto Instagram, really, because what you had was photographers, largely mostly amateur folks, not people that came out of the art school, not people that were, you know, gallery people per se, uh, but just anyone who, you know, probably had enough of a tech savvy to figure out how to start up their own blog. And um, basically the premise was like, people would make pictures of their world and they would post them to their blogs. And uh, it was like a daily photo of blog photo a day blog kind of thing where people would share their own personal pictures. And then as was the case in those early 2000s uh, blogging days, you know, you had blog roles and you would sort of organically figure out who to follow. And there were the, there were the popular people, the bigger audiences. And I came in and, and discovered that scene and, uh, you know, pre-Facebook, pre-Twitter, pre-actually pre the term social media, even existing in my vocabulary, uh, there was a Google group which is basically social media. Uh, and um, and it was this Google group for people that were in this photo blog community. And I was interested in photography, always have been interested in visual communication, was really interested. I wanted to just zine, like be a zine guy or a, I wanted to learn how to blog because it seemed the natural extension of my lifelong interest in broadcasting or, you know, publishing, that kind of thing. And uh, the, go, yeah, go ahead. A minute. What yeah. is, so is a Google group like an email, like group, a group email thing, or what is a Google group? Back in the, I think they still exist. Yeah, like a listserv. I mean, it was it was basically pre Facebook groups. It was it was it it was essentially a Google product. I do think they're still out there. Oh, um, I'm actually part of one. Um, it's like a Google, like it's a listserv for like um, sort of successful media in um, women in media. Sure. I mean, really, what it what it was, and what all of these things do, and this has been a, a part of the like the personal education and exploration that the Flag Photo Project has been from the start was realizing in the early 2000s that uh, going there with this interest in realizing that the web was a, was a place to be a, like to publish or broadcast. And then, and then kind of early on realizing that it was at the same time an, a simultaneously um, like existing social place, like a place to connect with people around like-minded interests. And, and essentially what that Google group environment was for me, it, what has Facebook has become is a, a way for people with shared interests to kind of come together asynchronously across space and time to sort of engage with each other around their 
their shared passion. In this case, it happened to be photography. And uh, that was really the beginning. I, you know, I remember I had friends in college that were using like IRC channels and doing some chat. And like the web's been a social place always, right? From since the, at least since the consumer web in the late and mid nineties. But like, it was in this time when our indie blog scene started to emerge that I started to realize, and I think a lot of us were just learning that, you know, all those blogs, sure, there were places to publish ideas, but they were equally ways to engage with each other and to meet people, right? And to talk and express and connect and communicate. And that social element of it was always really intriguing to me. And, um, you know, have kind of baked that into a lot of what I've done since. And how, how geographically diverse, you know, was that Google group? Because I think one of the big differences um, for Patty and I probably is that our experience is still rooted in the New York art world, you know, right. that there were a whole range of blogs that kind of emerged that kind of brought a different, I don't know, um, kind of art criticism into uh, the art world, um, even if it was just like, this guy, James Calm, um, Lauren Monk, who was going around and, and shooting videos of all the openings and the shows, you know, like mm -hmm. it was still kind of based in in, in New York in the city. Um, my, I mean, my experience, I, I certainly in the photography uh, world that I kind of, you know, found my way into. Eventually, I found my way into what I would call the quote unquote art photography world. I mean, there's all kinds of corners in the photography community, editorial, commercial, everything in between. But I mean, really early on in, in my earliest days, you know, when I started to publish, I saw, I started started to create, publish this blog that I called Flack Photo in about 2004 and um, sort of in, and officially launched a website called flackphoto.com in 2006. But um, immediately for me, it was an international scene. So, I mean, one of the things that I can really remember being just thrilled about is that you know, you'd, you'd send an email off. I'm in the central standard time zone in the United States. And then I could, I would start to anticipate that I would get emails back the next morning that I knew would be coming from the other side of the world. And that was always really exciting. You know, obviously we take it for granted now. And like all of these, you know, all of the, the chat text messaging apps that are just sort of gobbling everything up at the present moment flattens it even further. But you know, in 2004, five, it was extremely novel just to get a, you know, to be corresponding with someone. It was basically a pen pal, right? I mean, letters and handwritten technologies pre-internet social media, but yeah. So, I mean, it was a very global thing for me, but living in Wisconsin, I mean, the whole reason that I kind of started to explore uh, doing what I do with photo on the internet was because I didn't really have a scene where I lived in Madison, Wisconsin here. And so once I kind of realized that the internet could scratch that itch and be a place for me to, you know, fulfill my, my own desires to connect with like-minded people around pictures, you know, that really motivated me. And then, you know, eventually I just put a, a little twist on what was happening in that photo blog world. And rather than posting my own pictures, I just decided to show other people's pictures. And that was a really subtle little twist on what was happening in the photo blog community at that time. But it really opened up a, a whole world for me of, meeting people really and then you know starting to develop relationships with image makers and artists and photographers from around the world who i you know people who i still have friendships with, with today so yeah i mean it it, it truly changed my life i mean it, honestly yeah, i mean it's oh sorry i was just gonna ask what the numbers looked like uh around engagement at that point you know because um in the art world you know i think uh 
you know, if we're thinking about what constitutes like reaching an audience or finding success or fulfilling the desires, you know, still opening like a physical gallery show, which is really different thing uh, in this present moment. But back then, I guess, you know, how many people were you reaching? And, um, you know, we always love to talk about money <laughs> and how that works, you know, like, yeah. were there sales attached to this or did it open up any pathways to a kind of fine uh, art photography gallery world? Uh, certainly for some people it did. It didn't for me. I never pushed it in that way. I mean, honestly, my, um, well, to answer the first part of your question, I mean, in the very beginning, do you guys remember FeedBurner? Do you remember that? Yes. Like RSS to email tech? Yeah. Google eventually bought it and then like everything Google buys, they like shut it down. But, um, can you, can you explain though to, to our audience what, um, FeedBurner is? Because I think that's fairly niche technology that yeah <laughs> you know it, it, you know it probably is but and i'll happily explain it because it 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 actually opened up another understanding for me about how the social web worked so basically what feed burner was was a, a slightly more user-friendly rss um delivery tool and what rss is is uh is a technological tool for distributing content on the internet and you know rss is well, for like rich syn simple syndication or something yeah i think that's right i think that's right i mean basically it, when you when you found a blog that you liked like when i found Artfag city in the back in the day and i subscribed to it what i was basically doing was subscribing to the rss feed of this blog and back in the early 2000s we used what were called feed readers uh you know which were web software as a service like web apps where you basically could go to a dashboard and follow all the blogs that you got in real time which uh, you know, not there weren't ads in them and they weren't algorithmically served up like Facebook and Instagram are today. Uh, and it was essentially this like the beginnings of this like self curated media diet that you could create for yourself on the Internet. And what FeedBurner did was it uh, it made your RSS feed really visual, which for those of us that were blogging about photography was obviously super appealing. And then the, uh, but the other thing that it did that I jumped on right away is it made it really easy for you to, to to make it so that your blog could be emailed to people and you could build uh, an email uh, audience, uh, you know, to for, you could basically distribute your blog updates using email, which in 2004 and five was just kind of it's very new concept, you know, just thinking about how you distribute digital stuff and um, you know, like, so, so really in the beginning, so what I did from 2004 till about 2014, was I published this website blog called flackphoto.com. And uh, the core of it was just this, basically what Instagram has become, this uh, photo a day where I would show a photo every day from some photographer somewhere in the world. And uh, there would be a link to their website. And it was in, in those days where there was a lot more scarcity around this kind of content, it became one of the go-to hubs for people to sort of discover photographers and photographers wanted to be there. And, um, you know, gallery people and art directors and editors, uh, you know, that that blog was one was one of the sites among many of that time that people followed. Um, and uh, but yeah, so like, you know, what FeedBurner did for me and, and what I to your numbers question, I mean, I can remember when I broke 500 RSS subscribers, it seemed enormous at that time. Of course, that's small comparatively, you know, when you see that even like our president or uh, celebrities have millions and millions and millions of followers. But in those days for a guy with a laptop in a one bedroom apartment, it was really exciting because it, you know, it was the beginning of, of realizing that you could just 
broadcast yourself and what you were interested in from wherever you were in the world. As long as you had a laptop and internet connection, you could do that. And so, yeah, and eventually I don't remember. I mean, I had something like 80,000 people following that FeedBurner uh, account at one point back in, back when. Um, but then when my blog went away, that went away and it, RSS changed. I mean, it suddenly, basically Facebook just kind of devoured our blogging habit, right? Totally. I mean, Patty, I was going to ask you, um, when you were publishing Art Fag City, what would be, uh, how would you know when you really had like a, a, a hit, you know, of like an, an article? Was it the comments, you know, like? Well, that was sort of an interesting thing because like um, one of the things that Art, Art Fag City was really known for was its comment section. So um, sometimes I think like the comments would go on well beyond the life of the um, the actual articles who have been read. So we published, I think it was 2009. So like how many, I think it was like, how many artists does it take to screw in a light bulb or something? But it was related <laughs> to a show that Amy Sillman had put together at Sycamore Jenkins and it came with a zine that with a very similar title. And so there was a lot of talk over the quality of the paintings, whether how the zine worked in relationship to it, and a very big brawl that eventually got mentioned in the New York Times. Um, at that time, though, you know, the New York Times was very cautious about linking to any blogger or anything. So it was alluded to, but the name of the blog was not mentioned. Like it was just, you know, conversation online. It was happening in one place. Like, you know, it was like right, right there. So, um, but normally, I mean, the other thing is, is that I think when things went really well, it would be picked up by other, um, stories would be picked up by other people. So, um, John Raffman's The Nine Eyes of Google Street View, an essay that basically launched that artist's career. Um, which, and it was just a kind of collection of um, screenshots that he had found um, either on message boards or himself uh, of um, Google Street View. Um, but these were sort of extraordinary images, like somebody with a gun, you know, waltzing out of Walmart or like marathon runners um, running uh, away from a flood, like these kind of crazy images. And, and tiger, <laughs> like roaming the street or something. Yeah, there was something, I don't know if it was a tiger, but there, there was a bunch of very strange things like that and very disturbing things too, you know? And so it was a, an entire essay sort of ruminating on um, what you, like what the sort of art elements were to this, um, what the social responsibility was of um, the both Google and citizens. Um, and, you know, I think the, that really um, touched a lot of people. So we had just enormous traffic from that essay alone for years, you know, um, and he went on to do a cover for um, the Atlantic magazine. So in cases like that, like you know that things are successful because it basically is everywhere. Yeah, do you remember that? I appreciate that story because it reminds me of how in my experience in the, in the photography world, um, there was a period of time for sure when um, 
there was a lot of skepticism about bloggers and a lot of maybe just sort of wariness about photography on the internet in general. I mean, I think some of that had to do with, I'm, I'm, I'm presuming here, but I, I think that some of that had to do with a general, um, paranoia around the rapid dematerialization of photography, like just the, the physical thingness of photography really disappearing. And, um, you know, in like, oh, eight, nine, 10, lots and lots and lots of conversations about how, you know, the screen was inferior to the print. And, and, uh, and, you know, that was always at, at a certain point, what ended up happening, I remember this pretty well, I don't remember the year now, but it probably was about oh nine, maybe 2010. Um, Photo District News, um, PDN, the photography industry magazine, published this. I think it was maybe a cover story, and it was like bloggers are they the new tastemakers? You know, now of course we use the word influencer. We know what that means in a slightly different context, but it was basically like profiling these different photo blogs and and sort of documenting the rise essentially of um, how attention on the internet was sort of changing the game and the ways that photographers were discovered or the way that shows were marketed or the ways that books were promoted and stuff like that. And, um, you know, Flat Photo was, was in that profile, which is, of course, exciting. And um, and eventually I started to get invited to go give talks at festivals and art schools. And because I was this media guy, I started to give this talk that I called Photo 2.0, which was this marriage of like the Web 2.0 moment and then photography practice. And literally every single every single time I gave one of those talks, there would just be this like, at the end lots of people were just really unhappy about what was happening. And it's been interesting. <laughs> I mean, just, just, just that it was happening in general. And of course, you know, in those days I was probably, I don't know, 28, 29. So kind of a whippersnapper compared to folks that were in you know their fifties and sixties in these crowds. And um, very much of this like pro internet, like go on the web and be an entrepreneur artist and figure out how to do this and, and connect with community and sell your work and promote yourself and all that. You know, those are like the key messages. And, um, it's just kind of fascinating to see. I think Patty, you and I might have talked about this in another Zoom that we'd had a few weeks ago. Like, COVID really sort of, I think, has locked in the promise of what those talks were about 10 years ago. Like, digital literacy has completely been cemented. People know how to use these tools. Everyone has social media accounts, everyone has a mobile phone. You know, now in COVID, we're in this weird moment where you can't even go to physical places to do things. And it's really made the the internet be at, at the center, as in so many industries, at the center of everything. And so that's, I'm actually really curious to see how this next phase unfolds, because things that were super fringe and kind of underground have really become mainstream in a way that I, I actually think probably makes the indie voices more valuable than ever, you know, when... What, when, um, what are you talking about specifically? Well, I mean, for example, um, I can I can remember pretty clearly when um, the New York Times, Time Magazine, uh, The Atlantic, um, all launched photo blogs, and suddenly I like that was sort of for me personally. I suddenly thought like, well, what's the point? I can't top the New York Times. Like, I mean, why why, why does somebody want to be on Flag Photo if they could be in the New York Times? Like, yeah, the they had lens lens blog. Yeah, and lens was beautiful and 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 a, and a wonderful thing. But there was a point when, uh, you know, I don't know exactly when that was, early, you know, 2011, maybe 2010, 11, 12, later, um, when, you know, sort of there, and this is the history of media in general, certainly in the United States, where you have this underground 
thing that a lot of people are doing and a few people know about. And eventually the technology becomes more mainstream and then everybody knows about it. And a handful of people, you know, commercialize it and make it really successful. It changes the nature of what it even means to do it. I mean, it's part of the reason that I stopped blogging is that kind of just, you know, it was boring, <laughs> you know, or it was sort of just not as the thrill had was kind of gone, you know, like when the Time Lightbox blog could publish something, a uh, photographer's work and reach, I don't know how many people, millions of people, hundreds of thousands of people, certainly. It really dwarfed what an indie like like a flat photo or a conscientious or you know some of these others could yeah, do and that yeah. you know that changes the game and um you know now what's happened with instagram is which is great i think actually for the individual artist is that every single individual artist has an instagram feed as you know many of them have hundreds of thousands of followers themselves that i mean it obviously changes the whole nature of even where you want it have stuff published in terms of you know legitimacy or just reach just reach right just finding people for who are interested in your work or want to buy something from you or just want to follow what you are saying or thinking and that's been the kind of i think the steady evolution of social media and the web and my experience has been super underground you know mainstream groups kind of pick it up and then eventually the individual artists and the you know photographers and image makers have taken it on themselves to be able to produce their own stuff and, and these days it's either on instagram largely but email newsletters are starting to grow and uh you know those are those are absolutely opportunities for people to explore but in terms of the media landscape it is an overwhelming deluge of content like now you have way more stuff to even it's hard to pay attention to it you know it's hard to know it's hard to know where to actually look <laughs> you know it's everywhere you know, just as a sort of point of contrast, I wanted to, because William, you began with a question like, um, where, like how geographically specific um, was Flag Photo? For, for Art of City, you know, and, and for yourself, we were much more, I think, New York City-based. And I would consider, I think, like a sort of watershed moment being... Do you remember, William, when basically all of the Williamsburg galleries um, realized that they need that that they could move to or maybe should move to um, Manhattan? So like Foxy Production, Derek Eller Gallery, um, William uh, Edward Winkleman, they all Earl moved. Schroeder Romero, yeah. Schroeder Romero, they all Good moved help. to twenty. <laughs> Yeah. So they all moved to 27th Street. I think that was, was that 2006 or 2007? I think 2007 into 2008, before yeah. the financial crisis, you know. So, mm. Yeah, but there was, yes. And there was one, I think it was a September opening. Everything reopened and there were a whole bunch of new galleries on that block. Um, and Edward Winkleman, um, like, so there was kind of an, like, just a, a for that opening in September, we just felt like everybody in the world was in this one spot because there were just hundreds and hundreds of people there and there was huge amount of energy. And then shortly thereafter, um, Edward Winkleman organized just a small get together for bloggers in mm -hmm. his gallery. And we all showed up for that. And it was the first time that I had met any of these people that I was busy talking to all day um, in person. 
And it just felt like up, like up until that time, you know, until I had started AFC, I had been kind of operating independently and, and not really, I found it very difficult to find any sort of connection with our world. And then AFC really um, solved that problem for me. Um, and then when I was able to like just physically meet people, it just suddenly felt like, oh, I have, these are my people. I have. <laughs> Do you remember I, who was there, Patty? I'm curious. Yeah, I'm curious too. Well, um, Todd Gibson was there. Um, do you remember? He used to do this blog called, I think it was called From the Floor. Um, and he became an art advisor, but I always, I always looked at his blog pretty carefully because he was, um, he was really sharp, I thought. Um, and he had a lot of, I think he led, there was some Whitney criticism. I can't remember what it was, but, you know, <laughs> museums were always <laughs> in the news. Um, and uh, there were a lot of artists there, like Christopher Riger um, had this like blog that was, um, he was, he was an artist that blogged about like science and nature and painting. So he was there. Um, and, uh, oh, I think Greg Allen was there. Yeah, he's he's my like idea of the prototypical art blogger, you know. Mm. Somebody very interested in images and copyright and intellectual property, but not not specifically like a, a photo guy, you know. Yeah. And I think Sharon Butler from Two Coats of Paint was there, but I'm not sure. But and but there was like I'm of all these people that I've named just a handful, there were probably like 15, 20 people there, like, so quite a few. I'm curious, and, and so in your experience, both of your experience in those days, um, how, like, how much was the photography blogging scene bleeding into your, into your world? Because, you know, of course, what's true is that, like, the internet is a wide and big place, and there are whole little pockets that operate completely independent of other pockets. And I'm sort of curious, was, you mentioned Jen Beckman and uh, 20 by 200, um, in a note to me earlier, and that was absolutely I seemed sort of a channel that was kind of bridging the art world and the photo world. But I mean, what was was the was the photo blogosphere a part of either of your diets at that time? Uh, you know, not really part of my world. I mean, I knew that there were a few bloggers that focused more on kind of fine art photography. But at mm -hmm. that point in time, I'm thinking, you know, all I can, all I have is an image of like a giant Andreas Gursky, you know, photo background, <laughs> glass. Like, you know, there were certain trends in the art world around photography that were just sort of about big prints or something, or, you know, I think of Gregory yeah. Crudson's photography from that period. Yep. Um, but not the, I guess, the kind of emergence of photo blogs that you were describing earlier, where people mm -hmm. are you know, like one of the things I wanted to make sure we touch upon uh, is is just the, the changes in production and distribution that we're really talking about, right? Like, you know, we have this incredible access to cameras, you know, digital cameras, the, the medium, the physical medium of it is kind of going away. People are lamenting mm -hmm. that. And then we have the internet for distribution, which, you know, we can now reach kind of audiences 
And Patty, when you brought up the art fairs, when you brought up the galleries migrating to Chelsea, I always, I, I can't ignore that that's connected to the emergence of the art fairs that were happening at that time, that, you know, the galleries yeah. were suddenly selling work and could afford to move to 27th Street and to the Lower East Side, um, which didn't last all that long, but it was this kind of parallel, um, really like profound shift, you know, within the art world that, you know, you know, suddenly we're, we're making artwork and thinking about artwork through these kind of episodic fairs that are happening all around the world and they all kind of look the same. And, you know, then the documentation of work that happens in art fairs starts to change too. Um, I, you know, I think these, there's, there's some kind of parallel conversations here that I just want to make sure we <laughs> don't kind of skip over um, mm -hmm. as we talk mm -hmm. about this, because it, it you know, um, I, I think about how important it was um, just to meet bloggers early on. Like the, one of the first shows I did in Brooklyn, James Wagner and Barry Hoggard came to see the show at Damst Ultrager. And I'm like, who are these guys? And my dealer at the time was super excited. She's like, oh, they're bloggers. And I'm like, what <laughs> is this? What does that mean? You know, what does it mean to have somebody come and photograph your work and write something that's not quite criticism about it, doesn't uh -huh. have a masthead, you know, but still has an audience and James and Barry were sort of gaining a reputation uh, as, as sort of very thoughtful consumers of, of artwork. You know, they were collectors, but they were also doing this other thing that I hadn't really experienced before. Um, and, you know, I just also remembered like, this was enabled too by all this digital photography. You know, if I go back, I really wish there were higher resolution images, you know, but like they're, right. <laughs> like 600 pixels by 400 pixels, you know, from that. And period. actually, and, and to your point, you know, probably around that time, it was, I don't remember when the iPhone came on the market, but I mean, mobile photography was not the central part of it at that early point, right? I mean, that that was, that certainly have been like yielded one of the great leaps forward, which was this thing that had a, a superior picture making quality to it and then was literally connected to the internet straight away. Right, I mean that that changes everything too. Um, hmm. Yeah, and I guess I, I'm also just sort of interested in the way in which you know we you brought it up earlier that there's like photographers, and then we have this idea of image makers. And Patty, you talked about John Raffman, who's like uh, deals with images and screen culture, but I don't think of as a photographer, right? You know, in any of that kind of maybe traditional sense. Yeah. I'd, I'd like, I I want to get to that in like one second. I, I just wanted to loop in a, a couple of things. One, um, James and Barry actually were, uh, they, uh, so it's um, Barry Hoggard and James Wagner. They, they were at that, um, you know, IRL meetup, which actually seems very significant to, um, to go back to the point that the question that you had asked, what was one of the ways you knew you like, your posts were reaching people. I forgot to mention that actually you, um, I think it was you and Jen Dalton had a collaborative show at Schroeder Romero mm -hmm. and you produced this like zine that was like art fag city, art form, art in America, blah, blah, blah. And it just basically imagined a zine that like was entirely taken over by my blog. And I was like, this is, I just, I had, no idea at that time like you know you you can see your stats and all the rest but I had no idea that there were actual people 
selling or making things that would respond to it. So that was, um, so that was definitely, um, a thing. Um, but I think like, um, and then, um, to answer Andy's question about like how, like how much of these worlds were crossing over, like, so Jen Beckman, I think was a really big kind of tie. Um, mm-hmm. Your Colbert, Conscientious, like that kind of hit my radar, your blog. Outside of that, like almost nothing, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and Alex Soth, who I think everybody read at one point, yep. right? Yeah, showing it Kagoshin, right? Like Alex yeah. had a lot of cachet and visibility in the art world. And yeah, I do think that that's one other thing that was a little unusual was like sort of higher profile artists actually sharing images or writing, you know, um, cause it still remains kind of uncommon. Yeah, well, a little bit. I mean, I don't know. I guess I'm just thinking about like say Glenn Ligon's Instagram which is like sort of fully captioned in a way. It, I mean, it's just such a pleasure to follow him. Um, but uh, I mean, one of the things that that I feel like um, there is, we have this in our notes and I think it's directly related to this sort of um, interest that you're talking about in photography and image making and also like the role of criticism. Um, one of the reasons, at least early on, that I think I was sort of interested in photography is it seemed like and maybe this was a rather simplistic way of thinking about it, but it sort of seemed like a way that if like the whole web was sort of democratizing and like you could sort of dip into all of these different pools of audiences and reach new new people, like photography seemed like it was doing that um, in a way that also touched on visual arts, which was why I was sort of interested in it. But I also felt like at that time that there was um, at least to me, if I were to see like, and this is still true, like if I were to see, um, an, like a fine art photo on Flickr that was unlabeled there, there would not necessarily be a way for me to identify it as like a fine art photo. Um, in the same way that if I were to like search, you know, type in landscape and Google, happened to like pull up like a Sally man or something. I don't, that's maybe a bad example, but you know, Richard Moss or whatever, like, um, like, I don't, I don't know that all of us would necessarily be like, Oh, and that is the gallery photo because within these contexts, like that becomes very difficult to discern. And that's where I, I guess I always felt like, um, Photography held an interesting place because I, I mean, when I would have participated more in the sort of critical discourse around it, um, but I felt like there was a kind of flattening that made it very difficult for me to, to as a critic, really um, engage in that work in a way that I felt was um, meaningful. That is not to say that there are other there is work that I that I haven't you know reviewed or engaged with um, critically, but that was definitely something that seemed like a challenge to me. I would I would ask Andy what if you think back to the early days of the photos that you were sharing on Flack Photo, 
generally, what was the kind of content of that? Because I think um, a lot of the photography I think of, like I think I saw a show at MoMA that was sort of about studio-based photography, not really lens-based, you know, like processes and kind of conceptual approaches to photography um, that, that are pretty esoteric and kind of strange in some ways. Um, yeah, It's sure. so different from what I'm kind of imagining uh, if I even think of 20 by 200, I think of a sort of pleasing image, you know, um, maybe top down shot of pools or something. I don't, you know, there's, um, there's a kind of vernacular to it that's about kind of pleasure and leisure and which has really become the kind of like lifestyle uh, thing now on Instagram, which I'm sure on Instagram about influencers, you know, but, right. you know, I guess what, what was the dominant sort of subject matter that you were seeing, um, in, in the, the photos in the photo community, you know, maybe back when Flack Photo started and how maybe has it shifted um, into the present? Sure, no, that's, that's I'm, I'm trying to think about how to answer it. I mean, for example, once, like when, when the Flack Photo blog kind of started to pick up some notoriety, um, I remembered really struggling to even talk about it because I was just, I was just attracted to the pictures that I was attracted to. And then I would email those people and say, can we show them? And I didn't, you know, I'm entirely self-taught in my history of photography and I, I do know a lot about it, um, but I wasn't coming at it admittedly. I wasn't coming at it from the perspective of saying, uh, I am an expert on this topic and these are therefore the, the you know, the upper echelon of the of the uh, art world or the photographer world. I mean, it really, there was sort of um, kind of what was beautiful about it, I think, was that it was just pure pleasure of looking at pictures. And, uh, you know, it took me a long time to realize it and to figure out how to articulate it. But I mean, what I was showing a lot back then and what I still show a lot of presently is what I guess I would call documentary style, to use Walker Evans's lingo. Um, uh, not which you know and and I guess for the for the listeners like that that to me means li not necessarily literally documentary but but uh absolutely representational photography um images that appear to depict the real world um frequently images that are not in the studio uh but rather are images of the real world and therefore the camera out in the world um I didn't realize it at the time but a lot of those pictures were um were being a lot of the people I was showing uh, I would later come to, you know, when I sort of thought about it a little bit further, a lot of the photographers that I was meeting on the web that were sort of part of this, the kernel of it was this photo blogosphere social, you know, hub that I was sort of realizing was there. A lot of these folks were people that were in MFA programs. A lot of these folks were New York City based and and East Coast based, although some folks on the West Coast and people that were my age at that time. So, and in fact, I just was, <laughs> I just was looking at some uh, pictures that I had shown on the old flag photo site back in uh, like 2013 and was thinking, wow, this would this be kind of fun to like go back and show all these pictures that were really cool to me 10 years ago with that, you know, it would sort of feel like, um, like some sort of a mixtape or something from, you know, your the hits that used to love in the nineties or something like that. Like, would that even be interesting? But I mean, personally, lots of landscape work, lots of portrait work, um, not some, not lots of, uh, uh, to your point, not, not lots of, I guess, experimental or esoteric kinds of things really, really, and this is just because it's my own interest, really representational photography. And uh, I also think that you know, there was a there was a point when <laughs> my friends used to make fun of me because 
there was a pretty distinct flag photo style, um, which was, you know, hard to describe, but often, you know, you could kind of know it when you see it. And in fact, when Chris and my wife and I go on drives and we see a landscape view, you know, she, back in the day, she'd say, oh, that's a flag photo. And like, you know, a lot of times it would just, it would be a landscape. It might be kind of romantic, but it also might be sort of dilapidated and bleak. Um, and I think that those are probably emblematic of my own <laughs> worldviews and, you know, seeing beauty in the mundane, that kind of thing. Yeah. You, know, you, have, um, you have a photo that you've, a series of photos that you've taken relatively recently, I think of the, like, your house and the, um, the backyard and the, like, they're filled with, like, golden trees and the, it, like, because of the time of year. And it actually sort of reminded me of, like, um, you know, in um, Don DeLillo's White Noise, there's the most photographed barn. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you, like, look up the most photographed barn, it it has this like a sort of I mean you can look idyllic. at it yeah idyllic kind of um uh style that sort of reminds me of like what your backyard currently looks like. <laughs> well I know it's taken me a while to realize it but I actually uh I think I'm actually kind of very I very clearly like a romantic seer like I I really am drawn to those kinds of idyllic views and um that's not cool, but but it is very much sort of the way that my eye, where my eye wants to go. But, you know, to your point about the backyard, that's another thing, you know, just in terms of the evolution of of the Flag Photo Project. I mean, it was never about showing my own pictures. You know, I've never been a person that was there. And, and I was always really excited by and intrigued by those photographers in my in my beginning who were really learning and realizing how they could use their blogs or just the web to sort of show their work or express their ideas. So it's a good example. But Amy Stein was another photographer that was a big influence on me back in the day, the way she used her blog to show her pictures and write about her her ideas, but then also show other photographers. I mean, that's been a steady evolution for me with the Flag Photo Project in general, but as social media has become such a core part of my existence as a human uh, is really just showing my own pictures, sharing my own views. I mean, the last couple of years, getting increasingly political on those channels for better or for worse. And, you know, I think that's sort of, I'm, I'm assuming that's not unique to me. That That is, as I, I used the phrase digital literacy earlier. Like, I think as more and more of us become really accustomed to how these tools work, it kind of changes the way that we even express ourselves on them i mean do you agree or am i patty i mean you've been there do you you've, you guys have both been around for as long as i do you have you noticed um i don't know some sort of behavioral changes in the way that you write or engage on on those platforms what you say well actually i mean i think this is something that it's like a core part of the outline that we had um for this uh podcast was just sort of like how has um expression and criticism um changed online yeah and god it really has changed so much i mean part of what we were talking about earlier is that you know the blogs connected people brought people together who otherwise might not be able to meet each other or find a voice and there was a lot of communication and discussion you know i think the comment thread went from something where you had kind of reasonable discussions and debates to a kind of performative, you know, like this thread's on fire, you know, and people would come just to watch it and personalities sort of developed. But once the shift, you know, towards, you know, Facebook and Twitter started to happen, 
there was a lot of engagement early on in those platforms. I remember, you know, remember having conversations with people back and forth informally. It felt like kind of talking on a CB radio, you know, mm. uh, but mm-hmm. you were doing it in public. But then the self-awareness of kind of doing that in public started to become sort of crippling in a way. And people stopped communicating. You have it formalized with like the quote tweet, you know, instead of a reply, I'm just going to step on you and say something about what you've just said. And we can just kind of keep climbing. Yeah, that's like literally visualized, right? Like that's. I, 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 it was a joke the other day, but I tweeted something like, "Imagine saying hello or hi to someone on this platform," you know, before just. I like, remember that tweet. Yeah. Just like stepping right on somebody's, you know, thoughts. Like, hey, how are you? You know, that aspect of it seems to have completely been obliterated. And you know, I in in advance of this conversation, I went to my website to look at some old blog posts, just to like, what was I up to in 2010 or 2009? And I had forgotten at one point, uh, I started like retweeting everything about like the art critic Carol Vogel, you know, or something had done, you know, it was like a completely ridiculous Twitter thread of just nonsense. But I'm looking back at it and I'm like, wow, there was, I was experimenting in some way with this format and- you know, that has gone away completely. You know, there's all kinds of etiquette and rules about it. It's so much also more about using it professionally, you know, for artists to voice, uh, you know, political opinions, to support causes they like, to get their work out, you know, a bit of self-promotion. But um, the, the the real social part of it almost seems to be gone, you know, or- Do you, or, mean, on, do you, you mean, mean on Twitter in general or, or yeah, do, do, you mean on, do you mean on the web in general or do you mean just in Twitter in particular? I think Twitter is my main example. It's because the one I use the most. I deactivated Facebook a year ago. I just mm. have no interest in that platform. Um, there's something about it. <laughs> it's just so deeply repellent at this point. I can't bring myself to, to use it. Uh, mm. And, you know, Instagram, you know, the way Instagram has sort of really also changed. I mean, when you were talking about the... Um, flack photo kind of aesthetic or, you know, like that's a flack photo. I think there was that moment in photography where you could just point the camera at the world the way you want to see it. And it sort of represented maybe a lifestyle or an idea of the world that reflected the person taking the photo. But mm-hmm. once the selfies started to happen, you know, suddenly the person is in the landscape, you know, they're in the subject. And then you have that kind of merge into a whole kind of lifestyle marketing monetized version of that life that is sort of so aspirational and seems to be completely disconnected from that idea of reality that you sort of started with you know it's like a it, it's back to like Gregory Crudson photographs where people are self-consciously styling their lives to kind of sell themselves and products and a, a vision of the world um it, it this is a totally unrelated topic but I think well maybe not but like Kyle Chaika's book, um, Longing for Less, which like mm-hmm. minimalism becomes a lifestyle, a kind yeah. of aesthetic, you know? And I'm really interested, I think, when I think about photography at this point, I don't think about traditional photography or Ansel Adams or purists in dark rooms making editions. Um, I just think about the way in which it's become so ubiquitous in our society of, mm-hmm. of, of you know, kind of, sharing who we would like to be sort of aspirationally through all these platforms. And it, it's definitely impacted the arts. You know, there are artists who, uh, I think, I don't know, I, I would think I might be okay if I never see another stop motion video of an artist making work on high speed in their studio. Like, 
<laughs> this doesn't demystify it for me. You know, it's just it adds another layer of kind of performative, um, you know, like having to kind of like constantly be on display. But like what let's further erode one of the boundaries between art, life and work. You know, it's just like, welcome to my studio 24 seven. I have to entertain you um, before I can get this artwork to you. Um, so that that's a <laughs> probably a lot there to kind of like step back and think about, but um, that know. is <laughs> that is a lot. Um, and and uh, no shortage of cynicism there either. I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, you know, it's hard to kind of look at these, having seen how all of these tools and platforms have sort of morphed and changed uh, over the last fifteen or twenty years. I don't mm -hmm. even think it's cynicism at this point. I think it's just part of the kind of like professionalization of the artist, the way in which technologies have just become so accessible and part of life within our sort of late capitalist structure. I mean, I I, I think it's pretty realistic, you know? Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. Patty, were you gonna say something? Um. Well, it, uh... <laughs> I, I don't know. I guess there's kind of a bunch of things, but I, I, I don't want to interrupt the um, the original question, which was posed to you. So I'll come back in a minute. There's so much in there. Um, it's interesting, too, because. Um, you know, like the way that I use the way that I use social media and the way that I see a lot of the people in my own network use it doesn't actually come across doesn't usually come across as dire as all that, to be honest. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I have really kind of come to appreciate about Instagram, even though it's owned by Facebook and there are plenty to not like about Instagram, is Instagram really reminds me of what the, what the blogging scene was like when I first got started, which is, you know, like if anything, what I think Instagram has done over the last few years is it's really brought out a lot of just first person storytelling from people from photographers in particular you know you get there are a couple of categorical types of posts that you might see there there's obviously like straight up marketing like i'm selling this or i've got this show or this opening and that's fine and that's you know not super interesting uh then there's just like photo sharing, but the stuff that I find the most intriguing is like just sort of the storytelling. And it's not, you know, the way that the way that I think that the marketing gurus would would advise you to do it is to like, you know, show behind the scenes work like your, um, you know, stop motion animation example would illustrate. But, um, you know, certainly in May, um, after uh, the George Floyd uh, event, uh, I saw Instagram being used in my photography community like I'd never seen it used before with just lots and lots of personal political talk. And, you know, that for me, that was the, obviously that was a really like difficult experience for everybody and, and for some more than others. And, uh, but what was, what I did appreciate about it was that there wasn't a lot of phoniness about it. It was a lot of it was really earnest and and real. And one of the things that I get that I get cynical about is just this like uh, really markety kind of photo land talk, you know, that just feels inauthentic and not actually about community or connection or friends or real people or ideas. I mean, something I remember saying to you, Patty, when we talked that other time was um, 
it's always disappointing to me how the majority of people assume that you need to use social media to market things when in fact social media is fantastic for learning from each other and connecting with people and you know gathering viewpoints that are different from your own and just really like co-creating knowledge <laughs> is is the great promise of social media that i actually still think is there and i've tried to you know provide some places for that i mean i i host a photography group on facebook that is a really really like a life affirming place still despite the poison that exists on facebook at, at large and it's you know we have to moderate that community it's nearly 20,000 people but um in it's I'm really grateful for that because it is, it really is the, it's sort of powered by a lot of just the human kindness that, you know, we started the conversation talking about maybe not feeling like there's enough of that in the country or the world. And, you know, that's at least been a positive part of my social media experiment, despite all the negative stuff. I mean, Andy, I think that like, I think your experiences are really reflective of the type of um, communities you manage and like how you manage them. Like when you reach out and you ask, well, first of all, anytime you do anything, you tell them what you're doing and then you ask them what their thoughts are. Like, uh, you know, I've been feeling this way here. Is anybody else feeling this way? Post your photos below. Like it is like there is nothing about those types of interactions that invites um, that, that tells an asshole, like, this is a thread for me. (laughs) (laughs) It's sort of like the tone that you set, like all the time is, is one that I think like, um, is about in some ways encouraging a safe, uh, like a safer space. And I would say that before I came on here, I've, I've been running this, um, new company workshop, which offers, um, professional training classes and I just got on there and I did like a small little video and not that many people saw it you know maybe like seven or eight or something like it were super early stages but I felt like an incredible sense of kind of connection and just like gratefulness that there were other people there to share things with and mm-hmm. I felt it felt good. So I see what you're saying, I think, um, about Instagram. Um, although, I mean, I will say that that like that community also is like very friendly. Like it's like it's like the whole platform is designed for photographers. Like one of the reasons I personally have had some issues using it is I cannot take good photos myself. Um, when I do, they're kind of accidental and I don't actually enjoy the process at all. So I, although I like looking at photo photography, like participating yeah. in, in, in the platform in that way, it has proven to be a real challenge for me because it's not how I naturally express myself. Do you just um, follow people though? I mean, even if you oh, never yeah, post. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so for sure that's, and I think like, um, you know, we haven't really talked about this that much, but like, I think the photographer's um, vote project is a sort of good example of how you can use the platform for good, because this is just sort of a hashtag um, project um, that invites photographers to share their images um, in, in a, of people doing things that give them agency. Right. Um, 
you know, I think to William's question though about how social media has changed, I think for, you know, myself as a public figure who does a lot of criticism um, or um, I think it's like, to me, it feels like a much more dangerous environment. And I have had to do things that I don't think are necessarily good for, you know, my public presence per se, um, to preserve my sanity. So like, I think it would be better for me to be able to spend more time on some of these platforms. You know, I cannot do that and still have a conversation with people after the fact, if I get in a very big fight, you know, and I, and I think the, the turning point for me was 2016, 2015, like this was like the Hillary election. Um, Mm -hmm. Well, I guess we'll call it the Trump election. I don't know. (laughs) But like, so like, you know, I think like a lot of people I knew were really divided over, um, you know, whether Hillary or Bernie should be the candidate. I happened to have been on the Hillary side. I expressed that on Facebook and I don't, you know, I don't even remember the phrasing exactly, but I was just like, it was a Mm. torrent of people being so nasty to me and like, you know, saying things like, oh, well, no, no wonder nobody reads your blog anymore. You have this opinion. Like I built the blog on like my opinion about Hillary. Right. Like, right. Right. And but like my family members were reading this and I was embarrassed, you know, and I felt bad for them because they were watching me be like torn to shreds over some like, you know, position that I think like ultimately, you know, was not of consequence to anything that really, I mean, not that, I think I was part of a, you know, sort of a larger kind of debate that, um, that did have consequences, you know, like I think those, um, like those divisions were real and like we, we paid a real price for that. Um, just not necessarily because of the divisions, but like how they played out in social media, you know, like we were not uh-huh. having productive conversations. I think that and, makes sense. I mean, well, for one thing, I think everybody would agree that uh, one of the worst qualities of social media is the ways that many people behave on them, right? I mean, they are, the platforms themselves, well, for the purposes of this discussion, I would say the platforms are neutral. They're not inherently bad. They're not actually. I mean, the algorithms are a problem and Facebook has all kinds of issues. But let's just assume for a moment that like, you know, it's people, right? I mean, it's 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 the way people behave. Clearly, people behave on the Internet in a lot of a lot of occasions way more with way more inflammatory language than they would into your face. And that's awful. And don't get me wrong. I mean, I've been called a cuck on the internet and that always is like, mm, really? Just, <laughs> we can't even talk about this in a more nuanced way than that. You know, it's like, that's a drag. I mean, I, I, I constantly these days oscillate between loving my photo community, getting a serious like shot in the arm of inspiration from doing 
you know, the flag photo project and engaging on social and doing all of this stuff that we're discussing there. And then really believing that it'd be better for my mental health if I were just completely logged off these things. And then if I, you know, just could spend my time doing other things, I would probably, be, a, a weight could be lifted off of my shoulders. I mean, that's the balance I think that we have to, we kind of started talking about that, right? Like you have to kind of strike that balance. And some of that, for me, I've just decided I'm just going to ignore those things. <laughs> and it doesn't happen too often, but I mean, as a person that started, you know, I started writing like yourself, I started publishing Flock Photo in completely like anonymously, like writing about it in the third person. Eventually I started to talk, you know, be myself there. And then at a certain point I just became this like first person, you know, Andy writing this blog and writing under the label of Flock Photo. And, um, you know, after 2016, I just started to talk about politics in a way that I never would have dreamed of doing before. And that was kind of scary. And a lot of people didn't like it. And plenty of people told me to shut up. And I just decided I was going to keep doing it. And, you know, you just, I, I, I think that that's probably part of each of our um, adaptation to how, what these tools are and how we use them is sort of realizing like, well, what I'm going to say and what am I not going to say and how am I going to be affected by these things? And, you know, in, in the end, it probably would behoove most of us to think twice before pushing the button. <laughs> you know what I mean? On social. But I think like, I mean, that's, that is true, except that like the way that it functions best is when you don't think twice, right? Like, yeah. So, for example, uh, relatively recently, Christopher Knight wrote an article in um, the LA Times uh, about Baltimore Museum of Art's deacquisition of three key pieces, one of which was a Warhol. And it was a very, like, passionate plea to save this, like, you know, beautiful work and, like, how how terrible is all of this that he would you know, they would do this. And I kind of thought like, you know, this is bullshit. Like this, like this, we do not need like this monument to white men in the museum. And I said something like, you know, all the white male rage in the world will not get me onto the side of protecting this beloved Warhol, right? And this got a lot of likes, but of course it also really upset the person who I was talking about. And if you, you know, if I were Christopher Knight, yes, maybe I would not want to be called like be, be shamed for my white male rage. Right. So you can sort of see both sides of the, the discussion. We had like a little spat online and, you know, I was talking to my partner afterwards and I was like, well, maybe I did just throw this off in a way that was like to like, would I have said this if he were right there in that way? Of course not. But like, but he was like, but it seems like you're using Twitter exactly as you should be. Like, yeah, you're just doing something off the cuff designed well, to get people to engage with it, which it yeah. did, you know? And, you know, I think going back to your point, Andy, about, you know, the platforms being neutral, the context, uh, the political atmosphere around us, um, whether we're talking about Trump or Black Lives Matter, uh, it, it is such a politicized moment that 
even if the platform seems vaguely neutral, it's about the people and how we use it. Mm -hmm. um, the like the the art world that we're experiencing and the, the situation Patty just alluded to with the deaccessioning at the Baltimore Museum of Art is mirrored by like the National Gallery's decision to postpone the Philip Guston show where you now have like 3000 artists who have signed a letter saying, don't, you know, uh, don't postpone Gustin, don't infantilize the audience. We can handle these images. Uh, he was doing it from a kind of critical position. But on the flip side of that, like I shared an article with uh, Patty this morning from Nikki Columbus that is sort of saying, why all of this outrage around Gustin? You know, where was the outrage in support for museum workers and sort of putting people exactly. before art. And I'm saying all of this because right now it is, you can have people like Christopher Knight, who I respect as a critic, but I think is wrong, you know. On, I think uh, he is, yeah. MA, you know, uh, and I think that they were right to sell, you know, they should have gone ahead and sold some of those works in order to diversify their collection and do some things that need to be changed because we are talking about structural problems within the art world that, uh, that, that aren't going to be changed by changing who is shown in museums or uh, what kinds of work are shown in museums if the institutions themselves don't change. Um, and and it's, it's such a fraught and complicated debate right now. I've even just, I've kind of stepped back from even weighing in on any of this until I actually have something to say or support that I think is going to have some material impact in the situations at the museums. I don't want to get into a you know screaming match with like critics who I otherwise respect online. <laughs> the way people interact can be so fucking petty at this point. You know, I, I I'm going to resist commenting on something that I saw happening on online the other day, but I just thought it was so unprofessional and ridiculous. It's like, hey, can you just send a direct message to somebody, uh, you know, and like try to resolve your problem before you you drag a whole argument, uh, you know, in, into the mud for like the stupidest of reasons. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I, I, Patty and I had it in our outline and we certainly wanted to get at the kind of the, the politics of race and image making and photography, right? Because it is so essential to representing the protests. Um, it's so integral to representing the way that, uh, like statues and memorials have been, you know, radically altered <laughs> and removed mm -hmm. and changed. Um, it's, you know, there's so much sort of there. And then where it sort of overlapped, unfortunately, with our screwed up museum world is the canceled Whitney show, where, you know, they were buying editions that were made to benefit Black Lives Matter very cheaply, and then did a show without kind of getting permission from everyone and ultimately canceled, right? Right, right. And so, I mean, I just, just to even kind of open up um, the, the door to that kind of, of discussion, because we are talking about politics, right? And, and in a period where even some of the best photography I've seen in museums is coming from Black artists, you know, kind of giving representations of Black life that are not historically yeah. present, and not part of the kind of mainstream vernacular, you know, of, of maybe a kind of white photography in some way. Is that a question? Um, yeah, just to kind of maybe, you know, because we have started to kind of talk about politics, you know, and in a politicized environment, but just kind of thinking about, um, 
you know, what perspective you have on the role of photography uh, to represent kind of um, the politics maybe that we're you know, starting to talk about or have been talking about. Yeah, and I think just to maybe add to that a little bit, I think one of the things that we've sort of been interested in thinking about is like the ethics around um, photographing um, people who are engaged in political works and then representing them. Like what is the proper way to do that that is um, sort of respectful online? Right, well, I should say you know, at the outset that- What have you seen in your, your feeds too? I can only, yeah, I should say I'm, I am not an expert on this topic, so I don't want to, I don't want it to, to, anything I say to be <laughs> construed as being uh, spoken from that point of view. However, um, as someone that, you know, just spends a lot of time looking and listening on the internet, I mean, for example, one of the things that we saw back in the spring was lots and lots and lots of um, imagery of the, of protests around the country and around the world for that matter, right? And um, short, you know, so so generally at at the outset, that seemed like a good thing to me. You know, um, it's sort of like like with this voting project that we had talked about. The idea is everyone's got this broadcasting device in their pocket. Everybody's got a camera. That means like a truly democratizing, um, you know, quality to the images that we that we're going to see, not mediated by a particular photographer or by a particular photo editor or something like that. And um, Quickly, what kind of bubbled up, you know, in the photography group that I host and elsewhere in com comment conversations I was seeing on Instagram, something that I, I frankly, it never had occurred to me was the idea of even uh, protecting the identities of people that were protesting yeah. and uh, the danger, the, the potential danger that that put the, puts the subjects of the photo in. And you know, that opens up a whole, a whole can of worms that I think street photographers have been dealing with forever. And has to do bro more broadly with issues of privacy and who owns the image and uh, to say nothing of whether or not, uh, you know, white photographers are being commissioned and hired to go document these events when in fact it should be not white photographers, uh, you know, telling those stories when there's a narrative perspective to be shared. But I mean, that was a, you know, that actually in, in the Facebook group was the most intense social media experience I've ever witnessed an experience through the flag photo uh, moment because you know there's a lot of work and a lot there's a lot of confusion and ignorance and I say that respectfully I say this as a person myself that has work to do to learn uh, around that topic and around um, you know just even trying to understand how to listen to criticisms about how cameras can be used you know, I think I, I think it's fair to say, at least in my own observation, that the majority of typically white male photographers that I've come into contact with on the internet, I don't think I've ever once even considered uh, the ways that those pictures could be read or used or weaponized. And you know, for me personally, that was a really instructive moment to to learn something, right? And that's where I think if you come to social with an open mind and the right attitude and like, you know, take a deep breath before posting your reply or before commenting, you can actually really, really learn something. But I mean, yeah, man, that's a, that's a loaded, that's a loaded topic that I think is still, you know, people are really divided on because I don't come from the photojournalism world. I'm not a professional journalist. I'm very interested in visual communication and very interested in how 
photo media operates in the culture and the ways that it influences the way that we think about the world and interpret the world. Um, but, you know, just there was a very heated debate on Twitter as well from two very distinct points of view, uh, which I guess broadly, and I hope I'm accurately categorizing this, I'd say the activist point of view versus like the journalist point of view. And, you know, the journalist is this person that's sort of, you know, in quotes anyways, appears to be, uh, you know, purely about documenting the, documenting the world and whatever falls in front of my camera is fair game. And I'm just there to observe what I see. And, um, you know, without a real mindful approach to that, you're putting people, you're potentially putting people in danger. You know, the activist perspective is saying we, you need to be really careful about uh, if, who you photograph in the first place. And then if you're going to then take the next step and not only make those pictures and, and capture those identities, but then go ahead and put them up on the internet and on social where they're going to be recirculated, potentially embedded on media sites or reposted or shared in stories, that you need to take the extra step to blur people's identities. And that's something that is, you know, people are not in agreement about that at the moment. And yeah, I totally understand. You know, I mean, this is a conversation I'm having with graduate students, you know, in my SBA program, you know, one of the artists is from Thailand and had photographed the protests and ultimately uh, did a billboard project, you know, of, of a, a trans activist with a pride flag. But, you know, the, the artist uh, certainly got permission, you know, from the subject of the photograph. Um, you know, there was, you know, certainly allowed to use the art, uh, the, the subject's image uh, publicly, you know, in sort of terms of art because, and it's a really powerful image and I think it's sort of great. Um, but, you know, it does kind of, there, there, there are these really uneasy relationships between sort of that extractive quality of going into any community and bringing it out and turning it into a kind of cultural commodity. And I'm not just talking about like selling photographs or editions of say a print like that, but putting it up and saying, you know, like art stands with this, like we're going to make a comparison that, you know, art is sort of good and progressive and for this change. And I, I really believe that, you know, that the, that's part of art's kind of cultural identity, a kind of progressive belief. On the other hand, what I think we're, we're still talking about is there's a, a real struggle between structures in the art world um, that, that need to be changed, you know? And when I really take an activist perspective, you know, I side with authors who are like, yes, put people before art, you know, maybe we shouldn't um, be associating even, even images of resistance with like an artist brand or like a kind of career thing that's happening there that, you know, and, and also the institutions, um, you know, that, that don't necessarily change, but are willing to, you know, share images, amplify voices, you know, um, that, that, you know, are sort of using the image of, of cultural equity in place of actually changing, you know, right. boards and, you know, who gets paid what money and, you know, who gets fired or furloughed during COVID. So it's like, super, super fraught, you know, but it has to be, uh, the discussions have to happen. You know, and so I, I'm sort of glad to hear that you're seeing it and that, that it is creating opportunities for people to talk about. One of the things that you're, you, when you're describing photographers, Andy, even if it's the journalist, I just think about who's, who, who can go into these spaces, you know, to take photographs, who has that kind of freedom to, mm -hmm. to move through space with a camera, has permission to document and the authority to do that. 
um, without being attacked, without being, you know, assaulted by the police or detained. I mean, let alone right. uh, Trumpers, you know. So, you know, there is, a, I, when, I, when I think about photography, I do think a lot about mobility, you know, and what the gaze represents, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, well, that's an interesting point, too, just because I think that that, uh, independent of even who the photographer is, I'm under the impression that that mobility is being challenged all across the country. You know, like, uh, just as a person who follows news and follows a lot of journalists on Twitter, um, that's a narrative that, I mean, that frankly, that's one of the really, really frightening things to me about a Trump reelection is the continued delegitimacy of the media and, um, the enemy of the state language. And, you know, you see that happening, you, you know, I, I've seen countless, uh, mobile phone video, uh, you know, posts on Twitter from journalists being, you know, either attacked by police or just other citizens. I mean, that's a, a whole separate thing, you know, and, and the other piece that I think kind of figures into this, too, that I need to learn more about still um, is the the surveillance state conversation that's, uh, you know, sort of floating above all of us with um, with the way that these images operate, because, you know, that in, in that in that discussion I mentioned before, um, I think that's a whole different uh idea that a photographer has to even consider is the potential future weaponization of of an image yeah. um, in a politically fraught environment where you know facial recognition technologies exist so that just wasn't the case 60 years ago you know uh, or certainly not like it is today um you know we we have the right and so like that's that's pretty terrifying you know and as someone that uses google photos all the time it is useful and chilling how quickly that thing can identify me or my wife or a friend uh, from the tiniest, you know, most blurred photo. And I think that that's a whole, that's an area that I'm not an expert on, but I, I do think that that, that surveillance state AI um, photography intersection is very much an area that we all need to be more cognizant of. Certainly if you're out there in the world making those kinds of pictures. Yeah, I'm curious. Are you uh, familiar with like Trevor Paglin's writing and work? You know, because I think for for Trevor is one of those artists that gave me access to a lot of these ideas years ago, right? right. And like his essay "Turnkey Tyranny" is chilling to read. You know, it's from like 2013, and reading it, it it feels like you're reading about our present moment. You know, with mm -hmm. kind of both the specter of sur the surveillance state and climate change and the kind of climate crisis and. Um, you're absolutely right. I mean, like, and 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 Trevor thinking about like, uh, like Ben Davis's writing on Trevor's own photographs being used as evidence in an international court of law. I think it's still a really interesting way of thinking about, um, you know, how photography can be used in unexpected ways or ways that people might not have intended. You know, so certainly uh, having it sort of weaponized against protesters definitely gave me pause, even just do, going to two protests back in the summer. Um, you know, I wasn't going to take photographs of any of the, the protesters that could be identifiable, you know. Mm -hmm. um, right. And that that's that change put some, you know, definitely dampens that that enthusiasm to kind of like share the moment or a kind of historical moment as as a form of resistance um when you know you could be potentially doing harm um just mm -hmm. crazy sorry patty i think you you had something 
Um, oh, I mean, I was just going to say that, like, um, at the uh, Walker Superscript um, uh, Writers Conference in 2015, um, I think one of the most uh, sort of powerful uh, discussions that took place there, it was a panel discussion, and Aisha Siddiqui had mm -hmm. said um, at that time, um, visibility and a surveillance state is not power. And she had a number of very quotable lines uh, around that um, uh, subject in 2015. And I felt like um, just, you know, I, I do feel like identity and authorship and, the, and context is really like, I mean, almost far more critical than like if we were talking about like 2005, 2004, and now like that to me seems like the thing that is um, sort of like most significantly um, changed because the concept of authorship is in some ways now like so much more mutable. So, you know, considering what your responsibility is and, re you know, releasing an image out into the world and knowing also that that um, image can be completely manipulated and you have no um, power over that necessarily like that. I mean, these are things that I think do make the media environment much more um, fraught and frankly dangerous. You know, I think like this is, a, um, I, I just, sometimes I get a little frustrated. I feel like people don't really understand how dangerous it is for women online. Like it's really terrible out there, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and it, and that is the case for, you know, people of color as well, trans, LGBTQT, like these, they're huge, huge risks. And, and, you know, you see it at a larger level, you know, like I think that um, um, AOC profile and Vanity Fair, which talked a lot about the, um, how much her, she would like the constant threats she was getting and how she was constantly protected. And then watching on Twitter as like the, you know, the GOP response to that, like all of those operatives were like, look at her wearing really expensive clothes, like, like rental clothes, like no consideration for people's safety. And that happens all the way down the line. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's obviously magnified at that level, but it is dangerous, I think, for just regular people too. I believe that, no doubt. Do you ever, I'm, I'm curious, Patty, I mean, for, for both of you, do you, uh, certainly my, uh, my relationship to social media has changed pretty dramatically in just in the last two years, um, as I've come to realize these kinds of things we've just discussed. And then to say nothing of other, you know, other things like the way I, I, re, I read, um, have any of you guys ever read Nicholas Carr's The Shallows? Do you know that book? Mm -mm, I haven't. Published in 2010, 10th anniversary edition. I read it this summer. Pretty fascinating book. I mean, really what it talks about at the highest level is the way that um, social media in particular, but using, but the internet as a communication medium is changing the way that we pay attention and it's literally designed for shallow attention and on the ways based on the ways that our brain is designed to learn 
and uh, you know that the grooves get <laughs> sort of put into our brains, we're gradually, if not getting dumber, at least not, we're sort of unlearning the ability to pay close attention, to pay deep attention, to do, you know, to like read for long sustained amounts of time, for example. And so, you know, reading that, thinking about the surveillance stuff, thinking about the weaponization of all these things. I mean, it is enough to make you feel like, God, there was a time in my life when I didn't, I didn't have any of this stuff and I was actually just fine. Like, should I, should I just, should I just log off? I mean, William, you've managed to log off on Facebook. Do you ever think about going offline entirely or do you have an anxiety about doing that? Patty, I'd be curious to know for you too. Well, I mean, really quickly, I believe, you know, that, um, I think as an artist, I want to communicate with people, right? Most of my work is language based and I, I have always been sort of resistant to the like very, um, you know, the art world is such a hierarchical system of what's allowed to be communicated. You know, like Patty, uh, Patty and I at least got to see a kind of democratization of like art criticism for a while that, you know, sort of like blogs happened, hyperallergic emerges, but mm -hmm. things kind of settle back into their places. Um, and, you know, so I, I don't want to, discount the possibility of social media for, you know, communicating, reaching people, getting out to different audiences. Um, I think there's still a lot there, but I absolutely agree with you that it's not just our attention spans for consuming information that has changed. It's also what we able to write and produce, you know, uh, you know, sometimes I think it, maybe it's not so much turning out, uh, t turning off social media completely, but going back to like a committed and sustained writing practice or like firing up the old blog space again to kind of think through things that, uh, you know, maybe are not totally formal criticism uh, or like writing a standard art review, but really, you know, just getting back to writing in a sustained manner instead of these short little bursts, because think about it. When we respond in text now on Twitter, you know, you've got your character limit, you know, you can get a thread going maybe, but even those follow a kind of um, formula at this point. But on Instagram, you know, it's relatively short bursts. Like when you see people communicate back and forth on Instagram, there's a whole just culture of affirmation and validation. Love it, beautiful, this is great. But like the critical debates, you know, there's not even a whole lot of room for it in a sustained way, right? It's back and forth in kind of real time. Um, so I do think it's, 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 you know, both of those things have really given me pause on how I want to continue to use social media. Mm -hmm. um, specifically for the election though, I've really thought about turning it all off for like a week and just, you know, like, because I don't think, you know, I just wish we could starve this whole thing of the kind of coverage and attention that it's getting and building towards. And it's dangerous because any kind of um, early calls on these elections and to you know fulfill that desire and keep people glued to TV could be weaponized, you know, in by the Supreme Court at this point with like Kavanaugh's decision on not flipping uh, things that have already been called. So, you know, it's I, I, I share your desire that it could be great to just turn all this stuff off, you know or mm -hmm. at least really, you know, as I've been sort of trying to do, just moderate my use of it, you know, and like figure out other ways to think, you know, that, that aren't so dependent on these platforms. Yeah, I would say that um, that is something that I've sort of uh, trying, I've been trying to work on, well, a couple of things. I mean, I've been trying to learn how to engage in Instagram a little bit more than I have because I have not done a whole ton of that. 
Um, and, uh, but by the same token, I, I've like really, like, I, I would like to be engaging in a way that it does not consume all of my time. So there is time for a little bit more reflection. So like, because that seems to be, um, a really big part of, um, what causes problems it's not just like these these platforms are kind of built for like siloing and like um kind of create like discord just sort of naturally happens it's also that you know i think if i think if like the 20 if 2016 tells us anything and, and the last four years, it's that like media messages really do have um, shaped the way that people think. Um, and they are, and they always think that they have come to those conclusions on their own um, or that that's normally the case. Um, and I really think that we would not have quite so many um, Trump supporters if we didn't have a, like state propaganda network, um, <laughs> basically supporting these things. Mm -hmm. um, and by the same token, I think that we are really like conditioned to think that, you know, Instagram isn't, or like social media in general is not going to take all of our time. It's designed to be quick. It's designed to let us easily keep in touch with our friends without taking over our lives. But then, you know, I have, you know, I have a friend who recently told me she was in a dead marriage because her husband is addicted to social media, you know, like, and that's not, it's not at all uncommon. I had to like literally change the way that I engaged in social media so that I could have a relationship. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. And I, I think with, you know, Instagram and visual artists, there's something kind of more pernicious that happens when it's so mm, right now, because of the pandemic, it literally becomes the only site for some people to kind of connect and find audiences yes. and sales still remain scarce. You know, the economy for artists who are trying to sell thousand, you know, unique objects for thousands of dollars through Instagram, you know, uh, it can become all absorbing in just the attention economy and like, you know, feelings of, did I get enough likes on this? And I know uh, enough artists to know that it impacts them in ways in which they probably wouldn't talk about publicly, you know, because so much of their identity is now wrapped up in this. I've seen people get banned because they've started to behave like an algorithm themselves, kind of gaming the system mm. and then are upset when they, when they get kicked off the platform because they're doing right. things that are just fucked up, you know? Um, so I, I do, I, I'm, I am concerned about what happens when you funnel so much of artistic production into one particular platform that uh, has a lot of other things that it's interested in doing to the users and for the users, much like the way art kind of funneled into art fairs, you know, which are now gone. Yeah. And, you know, it's an economic nightmare for so many galleries and, you know, we've become so conditioned to these seeing art and looking at art and writing about art in these spaces that now they're just gone, you know, <laughs> like we invested a lot into that, you know, kind of 
and, and maybe they will come back, obviously. I mean, I hope so, but not at least for probably another year or so. Um, I'm, I'm, I've got a question for you on the, you know, we sort of started, it was nostalgic to take this walk down memory lane to, you know, 2005 or 2007, you know, what, what, what felt to me like um, maybe, maybe the most like kind of vibrant, fresh, exciting time in my internet photo experience. And um, I agree with you wholeheartedly, William. I mean, something, something that I, I don't think is talked about enough is the way, at least in the photography community, probably also elsewhere in the visual arts community, but um, certainly in the photography community, this like all in commitment to Facebook, uh, Facebook proper and then Instagram. And, um, you know, for example, and I, I'll just use this as a little example. Um, I think because of what they're trying to do to, to um, combat potential voter election misinformation, Instagram is just, uh, has, is like hiding a bunch of hashtags. Mm. And and uh, that's fine. I don't need to dig into that too much further. But it's a perfect example of like the completely unstable nature of these platforms that many, most of us, myself included, have just like really kind of put all of our chips, you know, in in that place. And so part of you know what we're sort of seeing, not so much in the photography community, but certainly like in the in the media community in the journalist writing space, is this sort of return to a blogging approach via, you know, Substack or email newsletters and that whole place. And uh, I, I write an email newsletter periodically uh, for the same reason. You know, for me, I started to do that because I posted, uh, <laughs> I got banned from Facebook for posting Win Bullock's Child in Forest. I don't know if you know that image. Beautiful photo, but it does feature a nude child. And uh, it never had occurred to me that that would be problematic. Of course, it, you know, got got banned and dinged my group. And um, you know, that just gave me pause a couple of summers ago. And I sort of wonder, you know, none of us are futurists here, could predict what might happen. But do you think that it's possible that, you know, in the next two to three years, we might see, if not an exodus from these platforms, sort of a growing discontent like we've been discussing today? Like, might that signal a, a return to you know, some personal publishing platforms, uh, you know, either for criticism or just for personal blogging or for, you know, entrepreneurial art expression, you know, is that, is that potentially in our future or is it all just downhill from here? I don't think it's all downhill. I mean, but, you know, speaking to like people going all in on one platform, I remember when Hyperallergic hosted the first and only Tumblr art symposium, mm-hmm. you know, like, there was a lot of investment in that that platform, you know, and it even kind of was giving rise to a sense that it was a, a creative platform for people to produce and show art, but like, it doesn't really exist anymore. I mean, I know some people still love their tumblers, but like, as mm-hmm. you know, it's <laughs> like a shell of what it used to be. And so mm-hmm. that just gives me pause that one, you know, like, be aware that these things are unstable platforms and can in a relatively short period of time just completely go away or um, become irrelevant by other, you know, sort of platforms that come up. But I, you know, I also don't necessarily um, imagine that it, we're, we're going to get back to like 2005 levels of people creating you know, their own websites, because part of all of this still comes back to that notion of how do you connect with people? And if some tool gives you 
easy access to a huge number of uh, viewers, that is a whole lot easier than kind of building your own private island out in the internet ocean. Like, how do you find your website? I I do miss part of that quality though of like discovering weird websites, you know. Oh or yeah, that you're like great. Oh, I found a cool island, you know, it's just hiding out here. And it, you know, I I think if there's a desire for people to get back to individuating themselves or getting off these platforms and really kind of thinking about the possibilities of creating things instead of conforming to like little squares, you know, like I literally spent like two hours the other day formatting some images from an installation in a museum to fit the kind of like multi-frame format format on Instagram. And I was thinking this is such a shitty way to experience this show <laughs> or this, you know, like, and why I have to do this on a laptop and then save them to a drive and get it over to the stupid app that doesn't work on, you know, I, you know, when I think about the purpose of what it, it's for, it's so user unfriendly in, you know, dealing with like complicated ways of thinking about images or sharing them, you know, uh, it's such a bummer, you know, and I wish I didn't have to use it, you know, um, to, to feel like I, I am doing part of my responsibility of an artist in getting the work out into the world in ways that people have access, you know, to, and not saying, come find my private island out in the, you know, internet sea. Mm -hmm. You know, I think the one place that has preserved like that spirit of the internet is the style section of the New York Times, like Corey Sika is always sort of, I, like I think the the most recent thing um, that was produced by the the style section that I that I saw recently was um, their um, it was just an article on like how to kind of relax during the election and it was a, an interactive feature where you could like click the next button and it would be like some puppies or some like. You just like watch something expand and contract slowly. <laughs> and it was very funny and beautiful and like pretty much everything you'd you'd want to see. And it had that like internet-y flavor that I think a lot of us still like when we at least when I have nostalgia for like 2005 to you know 2010 or something like that, it's that um kind of creation that I miss the, um, and the energy behind it. You know, now I, I, I do think that people are looking for, I mean, maybe it's another, maybe it's just another platform. I mean, I see that sometimes online too. Like people are like, you know, I'm done with Facebook. I'm done with, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm done with Instagram. Now I'm just using Slack, um, you know, or, or something like that. But it reminds me of, you know, that Zach Blass, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Zach Blass um, essay, Contra Internet. Mm, no. I... So that was published, I think, in 2016, 2015, maybe. And the idea that, um, that Zach had, um, it was published on uh, eFlex Journal. And, and the basic sort of premise built upon this um, uh, text that was written in the 1980s that had to do um, with sort of um, homosexual um, and gay identity and like finding ways um, that you could kind of 
get around the sort of binary way that people thought about things. And so you could like reject sexuality whole scale, like whole cloth. And it would be like the concept was contra um, sexuality. And, and by starting with nothing to be against sexuality entirely, you could then begin to kind of rebuild an understanding of sexuality that was a little bit more nuanced than like, here's, here's some men, here's some women, and this is what they do together. And the idea, and, and for that was applied to the internet and the idea that we have gotten to a point now where we can't, <clears throat> you know, the system is hegemonic. So we cannot imagine a, um, a life without the internet. And so how can we do that? And so that, it, that then was sort of the basis of a number of, um, like videos uh, that he, art videos that he produced, but also this this essay was sort of the starting point for that, where the idea was that you could just reject that, um, like the, the concept of the internet at all, and then start it afresh. I think the problem I think I had with that particular essay was that the solution seemed to be mesh networks, which, um, still seems like, you know, it's outside of the kind of corporate framework with which we, uh, everything seems to be run, but, um, you know, you, you're still managing a community and like, um, I don't know, I'm, my boyfriend and I were kind of joking that we, we see a lot of, um, there's a lot of scholarship that talks about like um, there being finding agency from like, from the margins. So considering, um, cons considering um, like a, an outside space as the space where only real space, um, where only real change can, can take place and how long that kind of scholarship has existed and how little changes actually come from those, those places. But I still think like, you know, even that that even with that being the case like i think we are nowhere if we don't have hope so <laughs> i agree i, mean, I know, agree I, I mean it's nothing without hope right <laughs> so i have to ask you patty or both of you have you have, have either of you read tim mon's book infinite detail Mm -mm. Mm, I no. read it, but it's the basic premise is the internet does shut off. <laughs> the internet shuts off, and what happens to all of this that we've you know been sort of talking about? Because so much of obviously uh, you know talking about image making and photography on the internet and how much of it is just fully been absorbed, not just into the internet, but specific social media platforms and you know all these uh, layers of. Um, you know, sort of control and lack of agency that we sort of have. And then Tim, Tim's book, he just goes and shuts it all off, you know. <laughs> and I, I, I have it reserved through the New York Public Library and I'm waiting to read it. But um, I, I, I think it could be a really interesting read after this kind of long conversation, you know. About that is the lesson, I think. Invested into um, social media platforms creatively, politically, um, you know, 
uh, and I don't know if Tim's book that was particularly hopeful, so don't go in. <laughs> yeah, and if you follow him on Twitter, you'll understand. Um, he's definitely kind of like grim dark or something. Um, there's. <laughs> I think that's the. I mean, that is the true. The truth is that, um, in in the same way that you uh, can't control what happens to you, but you can control how you react to it. Uh, you know it is on us to decide how to mindfully use these things. And, uh, you know, it's, if you're going to eat a whole pizza, you're going to pay the consequences, right? You're going to pay the price for that. And the same thing happens. I think if you doom scroll infinitely, I mean, I, I have taken to leaving the phone in the other room when I'm trying to do, when we're trying to watch a movie or if I'm trying to read a book, because I just will try to touch it otherwise. And, um, you know, I think that those little steps are where it where it comes from. And and there was a time when checking our email was this like scarce little part of our day. We weren't constantly checking email on this rolling basis all the time. And uh, you know, the news feeds have replaced that. And that uh, you know, in the end, certainly for in in for independent creatives, uh, it is a marvelous tool. There's just no doubt. But I think that um, it does feel like we are entering a new, appropriately critical stage where we think about how these tools impact not only our minds and our wellness, but the culture overall. And I think that, um, you know, there, to be hopeful about it, you don't have to let it, you know, you, we, each of us is in control, I think, of how, how that impacts us and how we use it. And, you know, most of us, I don't think, have yet taken the necessary steps. You at yeah. least logged off Facebook. That was a move in the right direction. Well, you know, I, I think a lot of the... A lot of concerns in the art world right now that artists have been dealing with and like arts workers has been conditions of their labor and work, right? And so there's been a stronger unionization effort happening at museums. I was sort of pleased to see that the uh, the Meow Wolf Workers Collective unionized recently. And, you know, um, it, it, that gives me some hope. But then when I sort of think about the platforms like Instagram that we're talking about, you know, there if we collectively want to change how some of these, um, because it's so, it's tied to our work. You know, this isn't just, you know, a platform for distraction, as you said, like it's tools for creative professionals, for artists that, you know, at some point we're going to have to reckon with, you know, our ability to democratically, um, and, and it may look more like a, a organized labor fight than any kind of voting situation to regulate or change the terms of service with these companies. Um, like Facebook, you know? Well, you know, I think, I feel like this is maybe a good time to wrap up. We've certainly, um, I think, covered a full 15, 20 year, or 15 <laughs> year plus um, history of the internet in this particular episode, which feels uh, pretty momentous. Um, and I think, you know, we're, we're in, we're in tough times right now and uh, um, uh, hopefully, and I, I think all of our listeners are feeling the same way. So hopefully um, this gives them a, a mix of, a proper mix of optimism and pessimism, <laughs> which I think it's like, we're all kind of swimming in. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Andy, for joining us. Thank yeah, you. This great, was great to meet you and get- Likewise. Spend some time yeah. to talk. My pleasure. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you.